1: hello welcome to another episode of history hag i am really 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 looking forward to this one i'm going to learn
0: something new and i'm very excited alex who have we got on today so I have brought you today Vasim Khan, who's from London. Uh, he's of Asian extraction, like me, where we have a similar background, I think. Um, but he writes a fantastic set of books, um, called the, uh, about the, the Baby Ganesh Detective Agency series, which is, is what he started writing. But this year he published the first in a new series. And the reason he's here is basically because I am totally in love with Midnight at Malabar House, which is his new series. Um, and you'll find out, Alina, that what he's done is delve into Indian history to write it. Uh, the other books are set in modern day, so he's basically here because I spent more on this than I've ever spent on a Kindle book in my life, and didn't regret it for a second. So, Vasim, hi.
1: Hi, Alex. Hi, Alina. And uh, can I say thank you for inviting me on? And it's quite intimidating to be in the presence of two actual historians as opposed to an amateur.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you, do you know what though? <laughs> Having read your book, Vassy, I'm telling you now, you are not an amateur because when you side off into the history, you clearly know what you're talking about. Um it just—it really is brilliant. Uh, do you know what I liken it to? I found it—it's utterly charming, and it's kind of like um, the number one ladies' detective agency books, the ones that are set in Botswana, but without the whimsy. There's more like this meteor, if you like, in terms of the background.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that, but with my first series when it came out, with the um, the Baby Ganesh series, the first book was called The Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra. Most of the national newspapers, when they reviewed it, they immediately did compare it to Alexander McCall Smith, mm. although I was quite, and that's great for a debut author to be compared in that way to someone who's been so successful, though I did try to point out that the books are slightly darker in tone because I'm exploring modern India, where I lived, lived for a decade in my 20s, and there's... In the West, we slightly mythologize India, we turn it into this land of swamis and snake charmers. There's plenty of that, but over the last two decades, India has changed incredibly with this massive wealth that's come into the country because of outsourcing and and globalisation, and that's meant that there's been this incredible inequality that's uh, sprung up so that you've got this massive new middle class uh with very western attitudes and lots of money uh, especially in the urban areas but you still have got all of these legacy problems all the way stemming from uh, partition and, and earlier the days of the raj incredible poverty on a scale we can't imagine so i try to explore some of that not just in the baby ganesha agency series but now with this historical series beginning with midnight at malabar house um so that's where that's where we're at at the moment
0: i think yeah you're right there are not in a sort of depressing way, but I think that there's definitely more to them. Those McCall Smith books are very, they're short, they're bouncy, they're very light, um, and there's definitely more to the stuff. I I prefer yours. and There's more to them, like you say, with the background and sort of the undertones of the history that you're trying to explore.
1: I do do love his work, and I do love that series. I I met him a couple of years ago. Um, He was doing a talk in London, and... He, uh, uh my publishers had taken me along there and, uh, he heard I was in the audience where he invited me backstage to have a chat because he'd read the first of my baby Ganesh books and he really liked it. And we just compared notes for a while. He's a very nice man, a, re- mm. a raconteur. He really tells some wonderful stories. I don't know if they're all true about the, <laughs> about the, gen- <laughs> the genesis of all of his books. And so it was quite nice to chat to him about uh, crime fiction in general and the way that the uh, different series overlap in different, in different ways.
0: Definitely. And so uh, the baby Ganesh stories, if people haven't read them, anything with an elephant wins me over. But his sidekick is a baby elephant, isn't it?
1: Yeah, in the sense that Chopra is a very serious and honest policeman uh, in his 40s in the Mumbai police service, um, who is forced into early retirement because of a health issue. And in that first book, The, the Unexpected Inheritance, he um, he he has to t- tackle the, the murder of a, of a boy, a poor boy, that his seniors don't want him to investigate, uh, so he does it after he retires. He decides to carry on with the investigation, but he also has to deal with this dilemma of um, inheriting a one-year-old baby elephant. And like most middle-class citizens in Mumbai, he lives on the fifteenth floor of a tower block. So it's, <laughs> it's quite difficult to to handle a baby elephant when you when you live on the top of a tower block. But anyway, that's so. Uh, I, I mean. A lot of people ask me this question, have asked me this question over the years, why the elephant? And it's more to do with the fact that the elephant is a metaphor, it's a symbol of India. I don't expect it to take the elephant too seriously. It doesn't fly, it doesn't sing, it doesn't talk or solve the mysteries. It's more of a device that I use to try and bring across some of the absurdity of, of modern India that's still visible. Um, I went there age 23 and just and I'd grown up in the UK. So I had no prior experience other than what my parents might have told me because they were from the subcontinent. And just walking out into a Bombay street, a Mumbai street, it's just an experience that is hard, almost impossible to describe. I'm I'm sure you've been there and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, If you're a Westerner and you've never been there. Before and I was, to all intents and purposes, a Westerner mm. uh, at the age of twenty, stepping into a place like Bombay. The first one of the first things that I saw was this massive elephant lumbering through traffic, <laughs> which is not the kind of thing you see in East London where I grew up.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's just an assault on the senses, yeah. isn't it?
1: Absolutely. So I guess that stayed with me, and then I decided when I got back to the UK, and I wanted to capture those memories of India and put them into this this book um, that I would have an elephant in the cast because I didn't expect it to be published which is the complete truth. And so I thought I could just do whatever I wanted. And mm. I've been really lucky, I, I suppose. Um, you know, I got a four-book deal uh, initially with, with Hachette, one of the world's largest publishers, and they and they helped to translate that book across the world. And it's uh, it set the tone for the series. And now I'm in a position where I can, you know, I, I asked them whether or not I could write a different series, a more of a historical piece, a slightly more serious in tone, although still with that backbone of, of humour that runs through, um, uh, Midnight at Malabar House and, and they agreed. And so that's where we are now.
0: You say luck, but before we start talking about Malabar House, uh, you are slightly inspirational to anybody out there who wants to be a writer because you wrote for two decades without being published. Um, nobody just gets a four book deal without being pretty special. Um, and you're the first book in the series, uh, one of Waterstone's paperbacks of the year, named as a Daily Telegraph pick of the week, um, Amazon best debut, top 10 bestseller in the Times, Saturday review. I mean, you have done really well, and it's just an example of perseverance, isn't it? Because you collected some rejection slips along the way.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty sad story, um, and this is why I hate, I, I hate it when you hear about a... Overnight sensation debut—that's been super successful. Uh, because the truth is usually not that. The truth is usually that that particular author has got lots of stuff in their in their drawer that they've spent writing over many years to learn their craft. But the industry loves to use those terms: wonderful yeah. overnight sensation debut, etc., etc. Uh, so for me, I I started writing when I was in my teens, and I was reading Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. And I thought that this looks really easy, I could be a writer, but of course Terry Pratchett, Sir Terry Pratchett really, he just made it look easy. But I wrote a comic fantasy inspired by the Discworld, and I sent it into a few agents, and of course it was rejected because, you know, it was rubbish. At the age of 17, what you write is normally, normally rubbish. And you're right, I spent the next 20 odd years writing another seven novels wherever I was working in the world. Uh, I, I used to bundle them up and send them into agents and then collect another crop of rejection letters. You know, I've pretty much been rejected by every agent in the country over those two decades, which is why, as I said, it was such a surprise to me that the unexpected inheritance of Inspector Chopper was actually not only published, but I was given a, a multi Book deal for it. Mm.
0: Brilliant. So let's talk about Murder at Malabar House. The key thing to this, and this is the history we're going to delve into today, is when you decided to set it. So why did you decide to set your new series in 1950 in India? The reason
1: for that is quite simple. I think that fiction in general has been quite good at exploring Raj era India, uh, specifically because it's of great interest to Western uh, literary audiences. Mm. What it's not been so good at exploring is that period directly after partition, independence, Gandhi's assassination, all of which happened around the same same period of time from 1945 onwards to uh, actual uh, partition, independence in 1947, and the period immediately after that, where India was trying to decide what kind of democracy it was going to be. Now. The thing that served as a catalyst for Midnight at Malabar House was while I was reading about that history just out of interest, I discovered something that I didn't know, uh, which is where the best sort of historical novels always begin. You find a particular fact where you can use, which you can use as a hook uh, to create a a fictional narrative around. And for me, that particular fact was that tens of thousands of foreigners were still living in India at the time of uh, independence. I had always assumed, wrongly, that all of the Brits had uh, up sticks and, and left for England in 1947 as soon as Independence, uh, independence Day happened, and that was the end of that. Uh, but I couldn't have been more wrong. And yeah. Bombay yeah. was Bombay was a home for, for many of them, and some of them were called, as you probably know, some of them were called Anglo-Indians, um, and some of them were simply people that had been invited to come to India to help India manage its new... Uh, its new country, because in, in in a sense India was a new country, even though it was had a seventy thousand year old history, uh, because you'd, the partition had lopped off two sides of it, uh, either wing Pakistan and East Pakistan, which later became uh, Bangladesh. So India was trying to discover what kind of country it wanted to be, uh, and because of that, socialism was uh, was rearing its head throughout the. Um, Throughout the nation, and Nehru, who was the prime minister who took over uh, Congress, uh, the Congress Party after Gandhi was assassinated, was trying to continue in those Gandhian ideals, but he was struggling with with multiple factions who were who you know had their own agendas, and the country is large, uh, and as with as many voices as India has, that was quite uh, quite a challenge.
0: I think one thing that you captured brilliantly was the flux of the country at the time and the fact that nobody really knows which way it's going to go and what's going to become of them. And you did that by... Like, you said that... Because this is... It's something like you say you don't think about it, but you had English people, Anglo Indians that had been in India for five generations. They've got no ties to the UK. They didn't want to just pack up and move to London. Um. So, but what you did to encapsulate that was make your victim in this crime fiction a high-ranking British person, didn't you? Yes. So, so
1: the, so the novel opens on New Year's Eve, nineteen forty-nine. And uh, Persis, who, Persis Wadia, who's the lead character, is India's first female police inspector. She's operating in a very misogynistic, paternalistic environment because the police force was very much like that and was a reflection of wider Indian society at the time. And so she's sidelined. She's shoved into uh, a police station where all of the misfits from the force are uh, are positioned uh, because nobody knows what else to do with them. And it's called Malabar House. And it's in an area in uh, in Bombay, in the southern half of Bombay. And a call comes through around midnight and she's called to the home of a, as you say, a top-ranking British diplomat. And I gave him the name uh, James Harriet, who who readers from the 70s and 80s might be familiar with. <laughs> he's a famous TV vet. Uh, and uh, he's been murdered. And uh, he's been murdered during a New Year's Eve party. And Persis happens to be the only person on call. So she... Ends up with this investigation falling into her lap, into her lap effectively. Uh, An investigation that nobody really wants because it's quite a hot potato. Nobody wants to be investigating the murder of a senior British diplomat at uh, such a, such a tricky time.
0: I think what's brilliant about it and this is where the history really comes into play just quickly why did you choose to go with the first because it's not like you had the story there already but then you kind of chucked another spanner in the works I love her and she's brilliant she reminds me of me in that she has literally no tolerance for people's crap whatsoever she'll just tell them you annoy me now I'm walking away I don't like you the end that's that's me which i really like but why did you decide to add that other facet to it as well with a female detective
1: so i think one of the issues that i have with india even now as a modern uh, country that's on the verge of becoming a global superpower is the fact that um, women's rights have been not very uh, well promoted throughout the country and if you uh, if you follow indian news you'll realize that um, you know every every couple of months there's another atrocity, another rape, another assault, and it makes headlines for a while and then everything goes back to the way it was mm. and this has been going on for far too long, and a large part of it is tied up with the way that Indian society has worked traditionally so say seventy or eighty percent of Indian society is still very rural, and these rural towns and villages are run by men, um especially the villages where they have a village council of elders, completely populated by men, who set the rules for everything, from the way people should live, who they should marry, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, car- caste barriers, and women have absolutely no say to determine their own uh, their own lives. So for me, that was quite uh, that's that's something about Indian society that still jars. And so going back in time, I wanted to use uh, a female voice to try and bring some of that into the, the narrative of the of the story.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant. I, mean, I don't want to give the plot away because I really want people to go and buy this book, preferably from an independent bookstore because they're dying because of COVID. Um, but the reason that it's so relevant historically is because it's all tied to partition. Um, so just explain to our listeners who have literally no idea what partition is. You've mentioned that the basically the wings were lopped off of India. Why was that?
1: Okay, so uh, for those of you who, who don't know too much about Indian history, the British were there for about 300 years. The first part of that was uh, through uh, the East India Company, who were a private enterprise. Uh, but they went into India, and what they did was they made lots of very one-sided trade deals, sometimes at the point of a sword or a gun or cannon uh with the the in the people who ruled india at the time which were which were largely uh royals of various descriptions nawabs and nizams and maharajas etc etc and at the end of that particular period uh the indian mutiny happened around 1857 and then the british government decided that they were going to take over because india was a great source of wealth for uh the british empire and it eventually became the jewel in the crown uh, for the British Empire, and so the British formally took over India as a col- uh, as a colony, and Queen Victoria became the Empress of India. Even though I'd, I don't know if you actually ever set foot there, uh, but she became the Empress of of India in due course, and by the time that we got around to the early 1900s a movement had arisen where uh, for indian independence indians wanted control over their own their own destiny over their own country because they were effectively uh, second class citizens within their own nation operating within the rules that had been set for them by the british, em- by the british empire and the british people who, ruled, who who ran all of the administration of of india uh, and by the time we got through to the late 1920s and 30s, what had happened was that that single movement, that single voice for independence, had splintered. So that movement was being led by the Congress Party, which was Gandhi, uh, a chap called Muhammad Ali Jinnah, and Nehru, and a few few others. And what happened was that uh, the Jinnah decided that the Muslims needed, or Muslims of India, or the subcontinent at the time, needed their own voice. And so ultimately that led to a crack in the Congress party and Jinnah and the Muslims started to call for their own separate nation within within India. And that led to a lot of communal violence. There was a particular day called Direct Action Day, which was instigated by Jinnah. uh, And that led to thousands of people being slaughtered in the streets, not by the British, I should say, but by Indians, so Muslims. And on the one side and Hindus and Sikhs on the other side, killing each other in the streets over the idea that there would be this Muslim homeland created separate from from India. What the British did was they took advantage of the situation. They, they sat on the sidelines and they allowed that. But even they eventually decided that this was too much and they decided that the whole thing was out of control and they had to give in. To Indian demands for independence to avoid more bloodshed. It was just the whole situation just became untenable. And with Gandhi, of course, doing all of his hunger strikes and his uh, civil disobedience uh, movement also catching fire around the country, it just became completely impossible for the British to to run India anymore. And partition came into it because uh, Jinnah just simply kept on at the British administration until they gave in. Because they thought that that was the only way to stop this massive interracial, uh, sorry, interreligious um, conflict that was going on. They thought that if they let the Muslims have their own homeland, everything would die down and uh, everybody would stop killing each other. Unfortunately, that did happen eventually, but not uh, not until about two million people had ended up killing each other uh, as partition happened because it was done so quickly that people were forced to move virtually overnight, leave their homes and stories began to circulate about you know, ethnic cleansing going on from one side or the other. And that just led to more violence and uh, et cetera, et cetera, until we have the mess that uh, we were left with.
0: I think this is one thing I was trying to convey to Alina before we started recording um, was the, the quickness of it, the bloody violence of it and the sheer scale of it as well, because I mean, it could be, I mean, the, the estimates are vastly different, aren't they? But it could be up to 2 million people.
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, the, the sad fact is that not all of the deaths have, have been properly counted because it's virtually impossible to do so. Uh, what happened was that Mountbatten, Lord Mountbatten, was tasked with delivering this uh, this uh, partition, and uh, he employed a chap called Cyril Radcliffe, who had to actually draw this partition line. Mm. And he had like a couple of months, and he'd never been to India before. He was a cartographer. Yeah, so he basically rocked it up and then just had a quick wander around, and then just drew this line through <laughs> through one side of India and then the other side, and it just went through villages and, and towns. And there was li- literally almost no time given to people to bundle up their stuff and move from one side or the other. And if they stayed, they risked being murdered by, by marauding mobs. So, and then if they got on trains, they risked trains being, many trains were stopped and set on fire and all sorts of atrocities happened on the, the railways during this, uh, exodus of people from one country to the other. And it really was a time that, uh, has just not, um, gone down well in history for either the British or for the the Indians on the ground who were participating in these things
0: I think um, as well what you did was set some of the story up on the borderland to try and really I think what you were trying to do was to hone in and show like a uh, instead of just talking about vast numbers and our whole country going through this to actually talk about individuals as well and put a focus on a small group of people and show how it had affected um because you have a whole family slaughtered in the story don't you
1: yes at, at one point persis and her um, co-investigator the uh, co-investigator uh, archie blackfinch who is a uh, He's a forensic scientist from the Metropolitan Police Service in London, who is working with the Bombay Police Service to help them set up a crime, a criminology lab. Um, He ends up working with Persis on this case, and they end up in Punjab, which is a northern state of India, which was uh, an epicenter for a lot of this communal violence that happened between Sikhs and Hindus and uh, Muslims, uh, because the border ran through the middle of Punjab. And so they end up going there and investigating some of this. uh, And you're right, um, to bring the focus down to individual levels gives us a little bit more of an understanding of what it must have been like to be someone who for decades, maybe centuries, you've been living in a village or your ancestors and you have been living in this village. And the village is populated by Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims. You all get on with each other. And then within a month, you suddenly discover That there are gangs of Muslims or Sikhs or Hindus wandering through the countryside, burning villages, murdering men, women and children, all because of this partition that the British have have said has to happen. So what do you do? You bundle up your stuff and you get on the first train out of there uh, and then you find the train is being stopped and set on fire. So to be an individual in those circumstances, I think it's impossible almost for us to imagine living as we do, growing up in a relatively integrated society. Um, you know, we we are not in danger of being slaughtered. Yes, racism, etc. Those things, of course, are topical, and we know that those things happen. But we're certainly not really in any danger of a marauding mob coming to our door and killing us on the basis of our difference.
0: Of well, people that have been your neighbours for generations as well, carrying that, out the maraudering.
1: That that was the, that was the truly terrible thing.
0: Um, Alina, what do you make of this as a Holocaust historian? Because you, you literally had no idea, did you? This is the first I, time you've heard this. I've had absolutely no idea all of this happened. And again, neighbour against neighbour, it's, it's hard enough to comprehend what happened in the Holocaust, first of all. And I'm finding it hard to comprehend what happened here. It's it's horrific, absolutely horrific.
1: It is, and one of the the, the, the truly horrific things that we're living through right now is um, because I've read a lot of stuff about the Holocaust, and it's it's quite it's just mind boggling to me that there are people in the world now who will not only deny that the Holocaust happened, but are trying to erase it from our collective memories. Um, and 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 some of these people are people in positions of influence and power and no names need to be mentioned but you know you've got senior politicians who are siding with voices who try to promote this narrative that the holocaust or other forms of ethnic cleansing that have happened in the past and you can think of serbia et cetera, haven't happened or either have either haven't happened or were not as bad as people are making them out to be and i mm-hmm. think well, nothing frustrates me more than that
0: I think what blows my mind completely is we're talking about people trying to erase the Holocaust from collective memory. But this, the circumstances surrounding partition and the violence, um, is not even in collective memory to begin with in the West, is it? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, that's again, um, something that some of, that myself and some of my, my fellow British Asian authors talk about. And that is how skewed the history that we teach in our country is whether it's britain or america or many european countries and i suppose the same applies even if you're living in the middle east or in india you skew the history that you teach in schools to what you would like uh, your uh, the younger generation to learn that's not necessarily the right thing for them to learn because i think if we were to teach more about the true facts of the raj era rather than just sort of glorifying semi-glorifying it then we wouldn't have things uh, that are, so for example what's happened this summer with the black lives matter movement we wouldn't people would be more informed about the the anger that's gone behind that for for so many centuries from the days of colonial slavery to where we are now and they wouldn't react or they would react in um, more intelligent ways to the arguments that are being put forward as to why black lives matter is happening Instead of just scratching their heads and saying, well, why are all these people up in arms about this? What's the big deal? Why are they tearing down statues? They would perhaps have more of a understanding if we were to teach those subjects properly.
0: I think one, thing, if you read this book, it's very, it comes across as lighthearted. And I think that, I mean, there are some, there is talk of partitions and, and the violence and that, but it, it comes across as light and airy, but that masks the fact that it's incredibly intelligent. Um, For example, You were talking about attitudes to Indian women and you haven't just picked a token woman and dumped her at a police station to highlight that. I love the way what you did with her colleagues. So like you say, it's a collection of misfits, but each one is kind of representative of a different attitude towards women. Like you said, you've got the paternalistic one. You've got the outright chauvinist that doesn't believe you should be there. You've got the conflicted ones that, that see India as a country changing and are willing to, see where this is going and encourage her and I think to take it as something that you just put down to come across as as light-hearted and as charming as it is belies the fact that actually so much thought has gone into the the historical background behind the story
1: well it's nice of you to say I mean look at the end of the day it's a crime fiction novel I'm a crime fiction author so I have to deliver an interesting book on on that uh... In that sense, that it it's got to open with, with a puzzle for the readers to follow. Uh, in in this case, a murder of a, of, a, of a British diplomat, and we have to we have to watch Persis as she grows into her role. This is her first case, her first real case, and it's a big one. And we ha- and she's you know there's many forces opposing her success, uh, as there are wanting for her to succeed. And so we have to follow her as she unravels this puzzle, which is what a good crime novel should do. It should take the reader along. On this intellectual puzzle that uh, the, the the protagonist is trying to to solve and hopefully it does that but I really wanted to say something with this book and, and and part of that was to do with women and female pioneers in India which again we are very lax in in teaching about and not just in this country but you know I've lived in India and I know that they're not very good at, at teaching uh, their younger people about India's female pioneers which which, again, is one of the problems of, of, of why women don't have the, the, the place in society that they should have. And also what I wanted to do is to take a look at this particular period just after Indian, Indian independence, because I think a lot of the things that happened then set the foundation for the India that we see Today, in terms of the democratic attitudes and in terms of the eventual settling down of the economy to a more capitalist uh, framework,
0: I think yeah it's, it, what it does for me is create a wonderful wonderful slash concerning obviously snapshot of a period in time and it's a really interesting period that you've you've picked to do just after um, the violence and just after um, partition to see how it is affecting people in the country. I think
1: more than anything else, it's been interesting looking at the kind of characters and that uh, uh, that uh, were around at the time. I mean, uh, Persis, Persis is a Parsi, and the Parsis were, a, a, or are, a community in India that they're very, very small, but incredibly influential and powerful they came from Iran. They're not Hindus or Muslims, so they don't bury or cremate their dead. What they do mm. is they leave their dead in uh, in, some, in stone structures in the middle of Bombay called Towers of Silence for vultures to eat. And that, for me, in itself, was incredibly fascinating because I knew nothing about that until I got to India and met a Parsi. And Persis's father is he runs one of Bombay's oldest bookshops, his Cantankerous, and he's had a run-in with the British that's led to the death of Persis's mother. And so she's grown up with just a dad, really. There's been no, there's no, there's been no mother uh, influencing her, and that's also fed into her. Aggressive isn't the right word. She's just a very forthright woman, and again, that's not a character that we often see. We often see women in crime fiction, but they tend to sometimes be conflicted and sometimes a bit, you know, subservient. But this person is actually is quite sometimes quite obnoxious in the way that she behaves around people because she just wants to get on and do what she wants to do. So she behaves like a man in some instances. Um, and if men can get away with that, why shouldn't why shouldn't Persis?
0: Yeah, that element of total social unawareness I can empathise with and I quite like about her. <laughs> and what I like as well is that there is in the book a character that is a very glamorous British white woman um, and she's nowhere near as cool as Persis
1: yeah well i mean I... persis is the is the is the lead of these books i mean i've just finished the second one and it's gone in for editing and uh, with all crime series you have to develop the character you have to move them on they can't be static so you know we smoothed some of the rough edges of persis but she doesn't lose that central ambition and and there's a line in the book where uh, you know she questions her senior officer about the fact that why shouldn't she be She be ambitious for herself? You know, why should she be? Because India has this mythology around women being mothers and wives and, and that kind of, you know, self-sacrificing martyr. And Persis turns around and says, look, why can't I be as ambitious as a man for myself? I want to be a, not just a police officer. I want to be an incredibly successful police officer. And there's nothing wrong with that.
0: I I do love that because uh, there is some matchmaking going on, isn't there? With one of her relatives, and oh my God, he sounds like a complete schmuck. I would not yeah. marry him either.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the truth, the fact is that uh, India, even of today, uh, arranged marriages are incredibly common uh, in urban areas. What's happened is that they've slightly softened in the way that they're approached, where you know family circles will introduce potential couples to each other and then they can make the decision but there's still a huge influence by parents into the marriage prospects and and choices that children have and in the village areas it's very much still a question of well okay that's that's who you're going to marry because that's the best match for you Uh, no arguments about that and especially women don't have much of a, a say in that in many village areas so there is an element of that even in high society and persis is relatively middle class upper middle class even for her, her aunt Aunt Nusi is um, busy trying to take the place of her mother uh, because her mother isn't around, obviously, and to try and find a suitable match for her. And if anyone's been watching *A Suitable Boy*, this is set in the same period, uh, so you can understand the anxiety of um, of uh, the seniors in in India in, ni- in the early nineteen fifties to ensure a good match for their children, especially for someone who is considered rather wayward in. Persis because of the choices that she's made to become you know a female police officer for instance
0: i i love it um i have to ask so we we had a brief chat didn't we over email before we did this and we just discovered that my family didn't have to relocate because of partition and they were already in what is now pakistan but so your family they had to move to pakistan didn't they
1: Yes yeah, so my dad was born in uh, in the 1930s and he was uh, in on the in Punjab on the Indian side of the border according to him and he sort of remembers as a, a 7 year old being shoved across uh, the border into Pakistan my mother was born in Pakistan so you know they ended up in a, a village there and uh, it was an arranged marriage and then what nearly 50 odd years or 48 odd years ago they came to the UK and they were there ever since until their recent deaths a couple of years ago. So we all grew up as uh, kids. We all grew up here. And as I said, I didn't get back to India until the age of twenty-three. And the funny thing was that when I told my parents that I was going, my mother was obviously horrified. Having grown <laughs> up and I uh, have grown up and identified with Pakistan. For her, India was the enemy. And again, this is a legacy of partition and Kashmir, which was the unresolved issue of partition uh the state of kashmir which is still in conflict because of the, the the partition didn't really solve anything there uh but my dad was actually quite quite happy because he'd never had a chance to go back to the village where he was born and he was really happy to 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 hear that i was going to go and live in india for a while and work there so that was quite that was quite nice
0: I think, uh, we discovered, because I, I knew the year, but I had no idea that my father was 15 days old when partition came in. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm probably lucky that my poor grandmother who died last year was yeah. not lugging around trying to relocate when she was eight months pregnant. But yeah, they were already in, uh, Mardan, I think. Yeah. In the so one of the
1: odd, one of the oddest facts that I discovered, uh, and that, also fed into to my interest in writing this book, is that I live in a place in East London now called Canning Town. Mm-hmm. And I was walking around when I first moved here, and I came across this really tiny little park, and it was called the Gandhi Chaplin Park. And I couldn't for the life of me work out why there was a Gandhi Chaplin Park in the middle of Canning Town. And then I did a bit of research, and it turns out that back in the 1930s, when Gandhi had visited uh, London... Charlie Chaplin had got in touch because he was such a huge fan of him, he wanted to meet Gandhi. And they ended up meeting at the house of a Dr. Katyal in Canning Town in 1931. And Chaplin was completely starstruck. Although when Gandhi was told that Chaplin wanted to meet him, he did ask his aide, who is this Chaplin fellow? <laughs> <laughs> he never heard of him.
0: So. Brilliant. And so have you... The second book is in, as you say. The first book is called Midnight at Malabar House. It's available now. Try and buy it from an independent bookseller. Have you stuck with 1950, or have you moved it on a bit for the second one? Uh,
1: The second one takes place very shortly after that first one, so Persis is still basking in the glory of having solved her first case, and then a second one lands on uh, lands uh, at her doorstep. And again, this is one of those interesting nuggets of information you discover. So I found out while doing all of this historical research that in Bombay, at a place called the Asiatic Society of Bombay, there is a two hundred year old, sorry for two hundred years they have held a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy, mm. and it's one of the two oldest copies in the world. Uh, it's about seven hundred years old, apparently. And so that so it's a it's a treasure. It's 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 almost priceless because. Uh, Mussolini, uh, the dictator, the Italian dictator, he once offered a million pounds or a million dollars to buy that book back from India, but the Indian government refused. And you can only imagine how much it's worth uh, today. So, in in the book, in the in my second book in the series, which is going to be called The Dying Day, uh, that um, manuscript is stolen. Persis is asked to investigate and as she investigates bodies begin to pile up and we end up with a sort of Da Vinci code kind of mystery because lots of riddles are being left behind leading it onwards towards this manuscript while bodies are piling up Uh, so we enter into some sort of dark territory uh, surrounding this, this manuscript.
0: Basine, thank you so much i'm sure all of our listeners interests are piqued, and they're going to be going off to buy the book now i can't wait to read the second one it's fantastic and i can't wait to only go back now and read the baby ganesh ones as well because i have an obsession with elephants and just like you've won me over with the addition of the baby elephant
1: well thank you both it's been so so wonderful to ta- uh, it's been so wonderful talking to to people who who know their history a lot better than i do um You know, as I said, most, most writers who write historical fiction are, are amateur historians at best, so it's quite nice to be in the company of people who, who do this for a living.
0: Oh, sometimes the amateur historians are the ones with all the passion though. (laughs) (laughs) They haven't been dragged down by academia.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much guys.
0: And join us tomorrow when Melody Beals will be with us to talk all about scissors and paste journalism. It essentially is exactly what it sounds like, but it's a really key point in the history of journalism. And it's quite funny because all of the things that they were coming to terms with in the 18th and 19th century and moral questions about copyright and things like that are all rearing their heads again now in a social media obsessed world. So join us to find out all about that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.